trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. Well, 2023 is quickly drawing to a close. I'm, I'm kind of torn, too. Do we look back on the year and and thought, stroke our beards or our chins anyways, and say, uh-huh, what did we learn from this? I'll tell you this. There's, there are some pretty solid lessons, but um, we'll, we'll get to it. It covers so many things. There are so many fronts right now in which uh, change is happening, and it's happening rapidly. It's kind of hard to keep up with. And when you do recognize some of the changes, it's, um, how can I put this nicely? It's alarming, right? There's there's a lot that seems to be hanging in the balance. Now, the good news is we're just in a historical cycle, okay? This, is, this type of thing has happened before, maybe not this exact set of circumstances, but, you know, the, there's a pattern here that has played out before. Now, unfortunately, that pattern includes things like Oh, I don't know, the Great Depression and World War II, mm-hmm, that was part of it. The Civil War and Reconstruction, that was part of it. Uh, the American Revolution and the founding period, also part of that historical cycle. Notice that about every 80 years, boom, boom, boom. And here we are, well, 80 years or so from the last one, and it's getting intense. So hang on for the ride. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. I do want to mention my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, IronsightBrewingCompany.com, and QuiltAndSew.com. You can check them out on my website at TheBrianHydeShow.com. While you're there, also uh, feel free to uh, subscribe to the daily show notes. So among the things we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about gold. Now, I'm not trying to push you into any particular precious metal, but I know a lot of people are looking around at the dollar and saying, hmm, sure buys a lot less than it used to, as well as the fact that most dollars tend to exist in digital form, which, you know, like it or not, that puts it in a form that's intangible, meaning most of your money, most of my money, exists as electrons in someone's computer or as a, you know, figure on a, on a ledger sheet but they don't exist in some tangible form that you can touch. This is one of the things I do love about precious metals. But gold is just, there are so many different lies. In fact, um, I received this uh, the other day from, from Money Metals. The seven biggest lies told and believed about gold. And it's hard to say which one is the biggest whopper. They say most widely held beliefs about gold or lies, propaganda hammered home to have us believe the only true measure of wealth is government-issued debt, which, by the way, that's what our dollars are. It's government-issued IOU notes. So, big lie number one is that gold is a barbarous relic. Now, it's a misquote of actually something that John Maynard Keynes the economist, uh, socialist economist of the 20th century, said about gold. It was kind of a biblical prophecy of gold, gold's demise. And here's what Keynes wrote. In 1923, he said, the gold standard is already a barbarous relic. Okay, that's a little different than just gold is a barbarous relic. Now, Keynes was a big spender advocating legislation to demolish gold's restrictive power on government spending. Well, how does that work? Well, well, the classic gold standard 
gold backing paper money no longer officially exists, do you realize governments still buy and sell gold around the clock and hold it in reserve? And they've been building those reserves recently at record rates. Well, what makes it different from the the money that uh, the Federal Reserve creates? Well, that's just it. The Federal Reserve creates in the form of Federal Reserve notes or, again, those electrons or notations on a ledger, fiat currency. In other words, money that is backed by nothing. Gold, on the other hand, is tangible. It's not fakeable. I don't know if that's a word, but you you can't, uh, despite all the efforts of many centuries of alchemists, nobody has found a way to transmute base metals like lead into gold. So it's, it keeps people honest. There's only this much gold in the treasury. That means we can only issue this many notes representing the value of that gold. At least that's how the gold standard used to work. So when you have the ability to print basically unlimited money, gee, what's going to stop a government from doing it? They're not. How else are they going to finance the exorbitant spending? My goodness, I was looking at a, a graph today showing the national debt. And I got thinking back, I, I, pick up, I picked up a writing gig about 12 years ago. My goodness, almost 13 years ago, writing for a financial advisor. And, and he, was, he was helping people plan for retirement. So he was keeping a very close eye on the national debt as it relates to government spending and also, you know, the amount of money that is being printed and put out into circulation, which, you know, causes uh, the purchasing power of the dollar to shrink, that's what we call inflation, is, you know, that's that's one of the main reasons why more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services. It waters down the purchasing power of every dollar. And I remember um, this particular financial advisor expressing extreme concern. My goodness, you realize we have nearly $12 trillion of debt. And he would track this every week. And when we crossed that $12 million or that $12 trillion threshold, he was like, this is unprecedented. That was just about 12 years ago. Now I look at that chart and the growth is just almost straight up. It's, it's ridiculous. We're at 32 trillion. That's just in the, in the debts that have been incurred. That doesn't include all of the, uh, what do they call it? Uh, the entitlements or the, the promises that have been made to pay retirees, to pay for the medical care for people through various government programs. When you get to unfunded, debt, in other words, future debt that's going to have to be paid, it jumps up to well over $100 trillion of debt and may even be approaching higher numbers than that. Now, it sounds pretty comprehensive to us, you know, well, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, you're talking real money pretty soon. These numbers are incomprehensibly large. As in, there's no way this debt is ever going to be paid off. There's going to be a default at some point, and that is going to rock a lot of people's worlds. I don't tell you this to, to scare you. I'm just saying it's not a sustainable way to approach things. Now, that's kind of a long way to get around to. So uh, uh, what were we doing before all of this, uh, this debt-based spending that was so championed by, you know, John Maynard Keynes? Well, we still had sound money. Gold being a part of it. Gold lie number two, big lie number two about gold. <clears throat> gold pays no interest. Now, this is the silliest lie of all, says moneymetals.com. They say th- th- it's meant to portray gold as lower class. Now, to begin with, no wealth instrument pays interest until it's transferred to a counterparty. Gold handed to a counterparty does pay, even though it's sometimes not called interest. 
In other words, there are such things as gold loans and gold leases. They do pay a return, either in the form of a lease fee or interest, depending on the structure. What's true is your Federal Reserve dollar notes or note dollars, rather, don't pay interest at all until you give away your controlling possession to a counterparty. It's like putting your money in, in, putting your cash into a bank or loaning it to a relative. And the interest you're paid for taking such a risk has often been effectively zero. But in real terms, the interest on the Federal Reserve notes is often negative since the typical interest rate paid is lower than the current debasement rate or inflation rate. All right, here's one more. Big lie number three, gold will be confiscated just as in 1933. Now, that's the lie most useful to the government because it scares people away from gold. Well, I don't want to buy gold just to have them take it away. As Money Metals has explained, the confiscation was a paid-for expropriation, which outlawed hoarding, not owning gold. In other words, Franklin Roosevelt left millions in gold legally in Americans' hands. His order was largely ignored anyway. Now, FDR's aim was forcing Americans to recognize only fiat paper as money because he couldn't print gold for his government spending spree. You do realize, of course, President Gerald Ford reversed FDR's order back in 1974. Now, today, this lie is most often perpetuated by peddlers of rare coins who try to confiscate the bulk of your investment via their ripoff prices in exchange for supposed protection from a future government seizure. Now, what's true is Washington has published plans to confiscate your cash in your bank accounts without notice. That's why I've said for a long time, leave as much money in the bank as you're willing to lose. Because it can be done. By the way, I have a quick update for you. I told you a few days ago about how Ammon Bundy's wife and his missionary son had their bank accounts raided at the behest of a judge and at the, the judge acting at the behest of St. Luke's Healthcare. I'm happy to tell you that his son, Hayden, had that money returned to him. Ammon did a video yesterday that said, you know, his wife's money has been taken. And that probably isn't surprising to, to a number of people. But this young missionary's money apparently was returned to him. And Ammon says, I don't know. You know, were, were they doing it out of the kindness of their hearts? Were they doing this out of a, you know, a sense of, you know, this is bad PR. This is going to make us look bad. Isn't that what started the whole mess in the first place? Or he says there's also a third possibility that what they did was illegal. But hey, when you have enough money, you can afford as much justice as you need. (laughs) That's a small trifling matter. Talk a little bit more about gold when we continue. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I'm going to keep going for another couple minutes here on gold. Just wanted to share with you the other big lies about gold. They include lies like gold is not money. Gold is useless in a crisis because merchants can't make change. And uh, let's see, here was another one. Gold has no practical use beyond adornment. Oh, my word. <laughs> Anybody who says that has, has not done any research at all into uh, things like space exploration, dentistry, medicine, cell phones, electronics, computers. I mean, gold can be stretched into wire miles long or pounded into sheets thin enough to cover roofs or ceilings or buildings, even the James Webb Space Telescope. It's an excellent electrical conductor. It doesn't tarnish. It doesn't corrode. It reflects radioactive and ultraviolet rays. It treats human cancers. 
But other than that, yeah, that stuff is worthless. It was just pretty is all. <laughs> Gold won its place as a symbol of wealth, value, faith, and endurance a long time ago. Last uh, big lie, gold cannot be created in the lab. Now, olden day alchemists tried to please their kings by trying to turn lead and everything else into gold. Failed experiments usually cost them their necks. But gold has been created in nuclear laboratories using atomic atomic particles accelerators. But, uh, you know, before you get too excited, oh, we can make as much as we want. Yes, at a cost of about $10,000 per microscopic atom. Oh, and the tiny gold turned out to be radioactive. But other than that, yeah, it was a huge success. Now, far more profitable, the laboratories of international banks regularly turn paper into gold by selling claims on physical gold through futures, options, and exchange-traded funds. Flooding the marketplace with synthetic paper gold is the preferred method to depress the prices of gold and other metals like silver. Now, what's true here is this underworld lab experiment ends once banks can no longer deliver the metal that they've sold. The current ratio of factory-made paper claims to real gold is over 100 to 1, meaning each ounce of bullion bank's gold has been sold to 100 different buyers. Doesn't that sound vaguely illegal? Isn't that something? By the way, the author of this is Guy, uh, is, uh, let me see this. Guy Christopher. Apparently he, uh, he wrote this some time ago because it says here that he was, uh, he's the late Guy Christopher, but, oh, no wonder. This is from October 22nd, 2015. So excellent article. It's contained in the show notes. I hadn't looked at the date. I just thought this was some really interesting stuff. There is another article that I would like to draw your attention to. This is from Clifford F. Theus and was written for the American Institute for Economic Research. And this one is about what's called the golden constant. Now, this one says that gold is considered by many to be either an inflation hedge or an all-hedge risk. Yet history, recent and long-term, shows that the real price of gold, rather, has fluctuated significantly, even violently, even in recent times. And he has the charts that, that demonstrate this. And from here, he goes into the, the history of uh, the discovery of the New World and the, the indigenous people of this, uh, prior to the discovery of the New World, and that the indigenous people of this hemisphere didn't have guns. The price of real gold apparently was actually increasing or gradually increasing. And this might reflect that in between discoveries of gold, its real price tended to increase. And then with the shipment to Europe of gold and silver from the New World, the real prices of these metals fell. It's a phenomenon called the price revolution by historians. So he goes through the history of how that price revolution um, affected the fluctuation in the price of gold. But then beginning in the 20th century... There were some swings in the real price of gold. In fact, violent swings. The first one concerning the outbreak of World War I and the suspension of the gold standard in Europe. Then the suppression of the gold standard in Europe resulted in gold flowing to New York, increasing the supply of gold in the U.S. and driving down its real price. The real price of gold recovered during the late 1920s upon resumption of the gold standard in Europe. And since the U.S. was on the gold standard... This, this rise in the real price of gold was associated with the deflation of consumer prices, waves of bank failures, and the Great Depression. Now, following World War II and the Bretton Woods Agreement, the, price, the real price of gold fell again. And the Bretton Woods Agreement can be described as a gold exchange standard. Only the U.S. dollar was directly tied to gold. Other currencies were tied to gold indirectly. 
by being fixed in their exchange rates to the U.S. dollar. And this agreement allowed an expansion of the worldwide money supply sufficient to avoid a post-war deflation. In 1971, the U.S. embarking on a path of deficit spending, the Bretton Woods Agreement broke down. With the breakdown of that Bretton Woods Agreement, the U.S. dollar floated against gold, meaning its value sank against gold. The country then moved like the Titanic from iceberg to iceberg in a bewildering series of ever worse cycles of inflation and recession. Then Paul Volcker came in and at the cost of a severe recession guided the Federal Reserve to the path of non-inflationary economic growth. Now, not all of this is making sense to me, okay? This, there's some parts I follow. There's other parts where I'm like, okay, I don't speak that level of economist, but here the author includes a chart, a chart rather, that shows the years immediately following the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement where the real price of gold reached a level not seen since the price revolution. And the demand for gold was fueled by ongoing inflation and fears of its acceleration. But with the adoption of non-inflation economic growth by the Fed, those fears weren't realized and the real price of gold collapsed. In recent years, a new source of uncertainty has been driving up demand for gold and its real price in 2020. For instance, the Trump administration asked Congress for trillions of dollars to slow the spread of COVID. And since then, the Biden administration has followed suit with additional trillions of dollars of deficit spending. So again, the real price of gold has risen to historic highs. And the fear fueling this increase in the demand for gold is that the unsinkable ship of state has been so compromised by debt that it now risks slipping under the waves. One possible prospect for the U.S. is to suffer decades of high rates of inflation, much like uh, character, such as characterized Argentina under Juan and Eva Perón and their successors. Another prospect is for a crescendo of hyperinflation to utterly destroy the middle class and set the stage for a dictator, as happened in Germany in the 1920s. So Clifford Theus says... With such possibilities, wouldn't it be prudent to have some gold coins you could sew into the lining of your coat for when you must make your escape? I know that sounds bleak, but again, there are patterns taking place here. What makes us think, well, it'll be different with us. (laughs) Maybe it will, maybe it won't. He says, I'll close with a story. As a high school student many years ago, I attended a national convention of young conservatives where I met an old lady. She said she was a youth in Russia at the time of the communist revolution there, but was fortunate enough to escape going to Cuba. Then as a mature, a mature adult, there was a communist revolution in Cuba. And again, she was fortunate, this time escaping to the United States. You in America, she said, will not be fortunate because where can you go? I know, that that one hangs on me too. Well, there aren't many places left. I think for a lot of us, there's a sense too that, you know, if if I believe in the ideals on which this nation was founded, I'll, I'll stick it out to the bitter end. I may go down swinging, but I'm not going to just abandon it and, and go looking for someplace where the grass is a little bit greener. I'm just speaking for myself, but I feel like... Uh, this is where I would, I would make my stand. And then part of that is based on, I, I believe that uh, this is a promised land. And by that, I mean, it's a, it's a land that, uh, it's a land in which there is divine interest. But I believe there are certain promises that must be made and kept with 
God in order to, uh, to use and to thrive and to prosper in this land. And I also believe that because it's a land of promise, that uh, the further we turn our faces away from God, the more we actively rebel or try to evict him, you know, from, from any influence in our lives, that uh, his side of the promise, which is to protect us and help us prosper, will be removed. I know that may sound like a dire thing, but again, I think this is a cyclical thing too. And there have been civilizations before us, I believe, that have uh, messed around and found out that God is very good at keeping his promises. All right, on that cryptic note, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know I am all over the road today. It's probably those uh, three energy drinks I downed this one. I didn't do that, by the way, but nonetheless, I am, I'm ping-ponging all over the place. And uh, if you're having trouble keeping up, my apologies, but holy cow, there's just so many different angles to cover of what's going on. So I want to take just a quick moment here to uh, highlight... Ironsight Brewing Company. This is my friend John Harvey's company that he just started up. This is a subscription coffee service. So if you are someone who really loves your coffee and you're willing to spend a bit of money for a premium coffee from the roaster to your cup in 72 hours, please click on the link I provide in the sponsor section of my website at thebrianhydeshow.com and check out Ironsight Brewing Company. It's ironsightbc.com. I think you'll like what John has to offer, and I hope you'll uh, do me the honor of doing business with him. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how we stand up and fight disinformation, misinformation, and all the stuff that goes along with it. Getting factual information is not as easy as it should be, especially considering that we live in the information age. J.B. Shirk had a column that talks about fighting this information war, and he advises the best thing to do is to keep our message simple, and to repeat it often. Here's how he puts it. He says, I believe in the kiss simple. Keep it simple, stupid. And I do my best to boil events down to their essential truths and then hammer those truths again and again. In fact, he says, repetition is my weapon of choice. The reason I stick to this strategy has nothing to do with who is reading. It has to do with the nature of the war that we're already fighting. He says, never before in human history have people been so bombarded by lies and propaganda from their own political leaders? The information warfare, warfare rather, that the U.S. government and other Western nations use against their own people is meant to conquer minds with direct programming instead of directed bullets. So how do you counter-program people who have been indoctrinated for years, if not decades? You kiss them so that they'll kiss others, and a steady flow of simple truths can start to crack the glass of our invisible cage. Now, he says, the whole thing sounds kind of dirty and promiscuous, but constantly reminding ourselves what is actually true in a blizzard of lies is an admirable pursuit. Crafty French diplomat uh, Talleyrand, who managed to keep his head through both the French Revolution and the reign of Napoleon, observed speech was given to man to conceal his thoughts. The Marxist globalists who use censorship and propaganda as a shield and sword are Talleyrand's ardent disciples. Now, Shirk says the size of the information war being conducted against us is astounding. 
and because the formerly free press has been conquered and conditioned to support the state, news outlets willing to report the truth are few. So when the corporate news cartel controls 95% of the information flow and the Department of Homeland Security is effectively censoring the remaining 5%, it becomes essential for those of us who see this war as it really is to sound a little like broken records. Using labels like deep state, uniparty, Marxist, globalist, ruling class, and elites is a form of subversive branding meant to align us against a common enemy. Make America Great Again is more than a jingler campaign slogan. It's an attempt to cut through artificial political divisions so that abused citizens can find common purpose. Rejecting woke dogma, political correctness, and other Marxist distortions of truth is a form of mental armor that defends against the government's unabating propaganda. And repetition of simple truths must meet the repetition of outrageous lies head on. So he says, why do I bring this up? Well, because the information warfare leveled against us is going to become much worse. Here's an example. A Canadian court recently ruled that describing drag queens who perform in front of children as groomers is not protected speech. Western government's war against moral virtue has become so obscene that those who abuse children have become a legally protected class. Hate speech laws, that novel approach by Marxist globalists to criminalize all dissent, are silencing people throughout the West. And before you assume that the First Amendment will prevent Canada's love from depravity over free speech from fully metastasizing down here, he says, remember this. The U.S. government's terrorist watch list is now over 2 million people worldwide, including thousands of Americans here at home. So with enough intimidation, the National Security State Sur- National Security Surveillance State experts expect that dissent is going to disappear because 150 million Americans are afraid of being seen as terrorists. Brandon Smith recently wrote in an essay about the dissected information warfare, the globalists view public manipulation and social engineering as their birthright. They think it's their manifest destiny, and they often suggest that humanity would somehow decay and self-destruct without their influence. Those who keep it simple and stand their ground, though, may force the Marxist globalists to one day face their Waterloo. Now, J.B. Shirk says, look, I've met a few people with a perfect track record of seeing through the government's propaganda over the last 20 years. Not everyone saw through the Patriot Act as a dangerous step toward an all-powerful surveillance state. Not everyone saw through the Russian collusion hoax. Not everyone recognized the early steps of the federal government's manipulation of social media as a mass censorship campaign against the American people. Not everyone recognized the mass hysteria over COVID as a complex, multi-pronged battle plan meant to manipulate the 2020 election and convince terrified people to surrender their own liberties. Not everyone recognized the war in Ukraine as a money-laundering operation for politicos, bankers, and industrialists. So he says, be patient with those who don't clearly see things as quickly as you do, because we've all had the wool pulled over our eyes at some point in life. And the government's exceedingly effective in its information warfare because it, too, keeps it simple. Diplomats of the woke faith repeat dopey lies like men can menstruate or men can give birth with such gusto that even religious leaders who, know, who should know better begin, spread, begin spreading those same lies as truths. Politicians use our morality against us when they say such things as we're all in this together. 
and good people can get caught in those empathy traps. Military spokespeople use our patriotism against us when they insist if we don't fight them over there, we'll fight them over here. And it's easy for warriors to end up volunteering for the wrong wars. He says, my point is this, however much you think you know, chances are that the U.S. government has conditioned you to believe at least some damaging lie in the course of your life. So have compassion for those who are just now waking up to the reality of our situation and state the truth calmly and simply again and again. New York University professor Mark Crispin Miller, a scholar who's written much about propaganda, says bluntly, the media has been crucial to this entire operation. And I would say since the beginning of 2020, we've been subjected subjected to a rolling thunder of propaganda. First, there was the virus panic. Then there was George Floyd's moment. Then there was the 2020 election. Then there was the so-called insurrection. That was a wave of crackpot hysteria. Then there was Ukraine, and the entire backstory of Russia's invasion was completely missing from all the coverage. So to say the press has failed abysmally is actually giving them too much credit. And while you see through the media's obvious lies, too many Americans still see them as obvious truths. And it's far easier to accept outrageous deceptions than to accept that our most trusted institutions habitually distort reality. The only way out of this psychological war is to confront falsehoods, mock propaganda, and speak honestly again and again until you break the government's spell over the enchanted. As the great James Howard Kunstler wisely advises, remember, you are a sovereign individual, and the blob in our nation's capital city is an undifferentiated mass of feckless protoplasm. You contain a cosmos of ideas and aspirations. The blob is an agglomeration of shame and failure. The blob stands for itself, not for our country. And J.B. Shirk says, you and I can stand for our country. So he says, my advice for emancipating others from their metal straitjackets is straightforward. Acknowledge there is good and evil in this world and commit yourself to fighting evil. Because we are in an information war, recognize that every lie must be confronted before it's allowed to subvert important truths. Repeat what is true often and always keep it simple. This seems like really solid advice. Now, I know it's easier said than done, especially when you know that, uh, well, this might land me on somebody's list somewhere. I don't know about you, but I kind of like the mindset, and I've adopted this mindset, of if, I, if I'm not on a list somewhere, in fact, if I'm not on several lists somewhere, then I've wasted a good chunk of my life. Well, how do you sleep at night knowing that you're putting out all this uh, anti-government propaganda? I sleep very well. My conscience is absolutely at peace because I'm doing my part to try to help other people see through the deception, which sometimes is very, very visible. Sometimes it's just flat-up gaslighting. Don't believe your eyes. Believe me. Other times there's more subtlety, and that, uh, that takes a bit of work to see through it. Well, there's a ring of truth, but is it really the whole truth? Am I getting enough facts that I can make an informed decision? All of this underscores the essential concept of knowing for yourself, being willing to do your own homework, being willing to think through, ask questions, research, compare multiple sources, and then make up your mind, as opposed to sitting there like a baby bird with its mouth open, waiting for someone to spoon feed you whatever it is you're supposed to believe. See the difference? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Final segment of the show. Two quick articles that I would like to point to your attention, point to you toward. I am really not hitting on all cylinders today. And I'm not going to make too many excuses, but yes, whatever bug has been going around, uh, my family and I have been fighting it, and uh, just a bit of mental fog to work through, which doesn't sound like much, but, you know, it's, it's, it's harder than it sounds sometimes to get your thoughts in line and, and be able to speak clearly. So uh, please bear with me if I stammer, if I stumble. I'm trying to do my best to, to share what I hope is a timely, credible, relevant information to help you better see the world as well as how you can step up and move the needle in the right direction. Now, I know a lot of us are concerned right now about the mental well-being of our teens. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say that uh, there are some very, very serious challenges facing young people today. How do I know this? Well, um, I had a conversation last week with a, a sheriff's uh, sergeant who talked a lot about uh, suicide prevention and, and suicide, the reality that uh, there's a lot of suicidal ideation, and especially among young people. I mean, it's, it's an epidemic. And I know very few people whose lives haven't been touched by at least, you know, suicide attempts, if not outright suicide. Very touchy subject. I get that. But young people are terribly affected right now. Now, here's the good news, okay? That's, that's the sad part. Kurt Malberg, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, points to a study which has, has been conducted that appears to show teens with very conservative parents are likely to have good or excellent mental health compared to teenagers with liberal parents. This is according to new research by Gallup. Adolescents with very conservative parents are 16 to 17% more likely to have excellent medical health. This fascinating finding was made in June of 2023 and features, uh, in a, and features in a comprehensive report published last month in, by the independent nonpartisan Institute for Family Studies. So among the things they talk about are how only 55% of adolescents of liberal parents reported good or excellent mental health compared to 77% of those with conservative or very conservative parents, according to the IFS report. Now, this report was authored by Gallup economist and Brookings Institute senior fellow Jonathan Rothwell, concluding that conservative and very conservative parents were most likely to adopt the parenting practices associated with adolescent mental health. So if, if the popular narrative gets so much wrong about parenting and politics then Kurt Malberg says maybe that time-tested path of love and discipline should be returned to its rightful place in homes across America. And he says if the power over children's mental well-being rests with parenting, then surely there's hope for the children's, for the nation's youth, rather, if parents are up to the task. I do know this. When your kids go off to school, they are subjected to a lot of things, you know, in that classroom that you may or may not agree with. What are you doing when your kids come home to wash the filth or at least wash the socialist ideas out of their minds and help them see reality? Okay, well, it starts with being a concerned parent and having those conversations. Anyway, I think you'll enjoy Kurt Malberg's article. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for December 28th. Last but not least... If gratitude makes us happier, why is it so many people struggle 
to exercise gratitude. In fact, how come so many people turn to the other direction and they struggle with these feelings of entitlement? That's what frustrates them. John Miltimore has an excellent article. This is actually from a couple of years back. What 10 lepers in the book of Luke can teach us about gratitude. Now, he talks about as a parent, he says, every parent has those days. Mine was Saturday. I took my kids to the budget theater to see The Incredibles 2. We ate buttered popcorn. We drank cherry Coke and chewed candy. It was a great time until my seven-year-old daughter wanted to play the claw game. Now, John says, I told her before the game's a ripoff, but she had her own money, and we believe in giving our children choices within reason. She played and lost, then she reached in her little black purse and grabbed a second dollar. She lost again. Tears ensued, then anger. And he says, it ended with me dragging her out of the theater as her little brother looked on wide-eyed. Our happy day was ruined. Little brat, I thought. How ungrateful. In fact, he says, I was upset with her and the fact that our nice day had soured, but there was also something more. He says, just like that, I had failed as a parent. It starts with claw game tantrums, then it's sex, drugs, everyone knows. Okay, not quite, but the truth is, he says, my wife and I try very hard to teach our children to be thankful for all they have. But he said that message was not getting through to my daughter in that moment. Now, as it happens, he says, the next day, I received a powerful sermon on gratitude at church. The pastor, Joel Johnson, a wonderful speaker and leader of the Westwood Community Church, said if there was a single quality he would increase in the world today, it would be gratitude. Listening closely, I nodded through his entire sermon. Now, there is, of course, abundant research showing the utility of gratitude. It makes us happier. It makes us more successful. It makes us better leaders. In his 2008 book, Thanks, How Practicing Gratitude Can Make You Happier, Robert A. Emmons, who spent years studying gratitude, wrote, Grateful people experience higher levels of positive emotions such as joy, enthusiasm, love, happiness, and optimism, and that the practice of gratitude as a discipline protects a person from the destructive impulses of envy, resentment, greed, and bitterness. End quote. Now, John says, you would think that would make gratitude easy for us. I mean, who doesn't want to be happier and more successful? But he says, gratitude for all its merit is not something easily embraced. At least that's what the evidence suggests. The most obvious example, of course, is the presence of the victimhood culture, which has turned grievance into a fad. There's something odd and troubling about an ideology that stokes the embers of our resentment, particularly in a time and place enjoying unprecedented wealth and opportunity. But look closer. How often do you feel grateful? More importantly, how often do you express and show your gratitude to others? If we're honest, the answer is probably the same for most of us. Not enough, not even close. So why does gratitude come so hard to us? Why do feelings of entitlement and envy invade our thoughts? And from here he tells the story of Jesus and the ten lepers. So Jesus is traveling along the border of Samaria, uh, Samaria rather, in Galilee when the lepers call out to him, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Go show yourselves to the priests, Jesus responds. The lepers go to the priests and are cleansed, Luke tells us, but the story doesn't end there. A single leper, a Samaritan, returns and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Of the ten lepers healed, a single one returns. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Jesus asks. Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Luke does not tell us how the Samaritan replies, but Jesus tells him something before sending the man on his way. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, there are several takeaways from this story. 
The idea that gratitude is part of being well is certainly present. This comports with the findings cited above. But the most powerful takeaway for John was the idea that humans struggle mightily with gratitude. And this apparently includes people cured of infectious skin diseases, as well as those, as well as those of us who live amid unprecedented peace and prosperity. So he talks then about being, getting serious about being grateful. And he says, as, as a people, Americans need to get this right. If philosophy, if philosophy matters and if entitlement, envy, and resentment overcome our better angels of gratitude, generosity, and goodwill, the price will be high. We won't just be miserable. We'll one day realize we let evil slip through the front door. Now, there's much more to this article, but I hope, that, uh, I hope you'll take a look at it. John points out here, gratitude is not earned so cheaply. It's hard. There's something in the human constitution that draws us towards its adversaries of envy and entitlement. Moreover, gratitude requires not just feeling thankful, but acting on it and living it. I think the best example I can think of is the unhappy times in my life where I was more focused on what I didn't have or what I wanted but couldn't afford than when I was actually grateful for what I had. And I'm going to paraphrase this because I'm sure I'm going to butcher it in, in the execution, but one of the keys to becoming very wealthy, and I'm using that term almost in air quotes here, is to learn to be thankful for what you have. Does that make sense? A person living in a very modest situation in terms of their earthly possessions, if they are sufficiently grateful, can feel an incredible sense of wealth and abundance in their life. By the way, this is something I've put to to the test in my own life. All the years I've worked in radio have pretty much assured that, you know, I have uh, maintained a modest lifestyle, sometimes against my choice, but... I've definitely noticed my happiness is tied to my ability to be thankful for what I have and to appreciate what I have. I highly recommend getting in the habit of finding reasons to feel thankful and not just feeling it, but expressing it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.